minutes, his trays are going to pass by that have a little piece of uh, bread, a, a little cracker on them, and, and cups full of juice. If you're a follower of Jesus, those go by to help us remember, to remind us that Jesus went to the cross for us, that he willingly gave his body. He willingly um, shed his blood for us so that we could experience forgiveness. If you're not, if you're, yeah, yeah. If you're not a follower of Jesus, know that it's okay to just pass the trays by when, when they come a little bit later. Um, and just enjoy a few minutes of quietness and just think about um, maybe what it really means if this whole thing is true, if Jesus really did die for us, if, um, if he really did take our sins on himself. I want to invite you, encourage you today during this time of communion to do something real specific. I want you to just kind of shut your eyes and to, and to in your mind's eye, to, to look into the eyes of Jesus. And I think what you'll find there as you, as you look into Jesus' eyes, you'll, you'll see eyes full of love and kindness and grace, eyes of hope and eyes of peace. They're not eyes that are angry. They're not eyes that are condescending. They're not eyes that, that are proud. But they're eyes from one who loves us just as we've been, as we've been singing. Um, let, me, let, me, let me read from Romans 5. And as you think about the eyes of Jesus and you think about him, I think one of the things that happens is that you go from concentrating on his eyes to looking up into his forehead and you see where the crown of thorns was. You recognize those wounds. So you kind of look back, you see the wound in his, in his side from the spear and the, the marks from the nails in his hands and his feet as Jesus went to the cross for us. Paul writes this in Romans. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope doesn't disappoint us because God poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man some might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We share the Lord's Supper to remind us, to help us remember, while we were still in our sins, Jesus went to the cross for us. Music's going to start to play in just a little bit. Um, the the um, ushers are going to bring down the, the, the trays. Um, feel free to, to take those and hold on to them. And, um, and we'll start to sing. And, and just whenever you're ready, go ahead and take the, the bread and take the cup. We're not going to do it together. You're kind of on your own to just spend some time talking to Jesus, looking into his eyes. Um, and then when you're ready, uh, go ahead and, and join back in, into the song. Feel free to stand or sit or, or just however you, you sense that you can worship best. Turn your eyes on Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory 
and grace. Let's share together the Lord's Supper. today. Thank you for that song. And Jesus, I pray, frankly, for me, (laughs) I pray, God, that that song would be true of me, that the words that just came out of my mouth would not be a lie or a deceit.
But God, be absolutely true of me that it is my joy to honor you. It is my joy to live for you because the crazy truth is that my king died for me. It's crazy. Jesus, thank you so much for it. And even in the next few minutes as we think together and we look at your word together, that God, somehow you would have something to say to us. You'd spark something in our hearts to remind us of how awesome you are, how engaged you are, how involved you are, how much you love us, and what our response is to that. So in this time, God, I pray that the song would be true of us. I pray this morning in your name. I love you. Amen. Well, North Point, you can feel free to grab a seat. I, I got to be honest, I, I said this in first service too, and I don't have a better transition now than I did then. It's like this is a really hard transition because, frankly, sometimes after a song like that, I just want to sit for a while, right, and soak it in. So consider this a hard transition. Fair enough. Is that we'll just go like that. I don't have anything better for you. I'm sorry for that. Uh, we got some folks who are going to come down and, and pass out our uh, uh, welcome books this morning. And as soon as you get that, hang on to it for just one or two seconds. Don't just immediately start sliding it down the aisle. Because I just want to mention real quick, we forget to say this very often of, of why we do this. I, I know we mentioned if uh, folks are guests with us this morning, we love knowing that you are here. But honestly, if you are not a guest, if you are uh, old, if you are ancient and decrepit, or just kidding, we, would lo- we want you to put your name and info in that as well. Even just your name, that helps us to know. And Rick kind of mentioned it last week, but, but I just want to pound it again today. That helps us know. And there's some reasons for that. If you're into systems or statistics, then, then I'm speaking your language right now. But this helps us know certain things about Sunday mornings. Little stuff like how many worship folders should we print? Little things, right? So if you don't put your name on there, we think there's six people here. And so we print six worship folders and and really 500 show up. And so someone doesn't get one because you didn't put your name there. If you feel sufficiently guilted, that's terrible, right? I shouldn't do that. Okay, but 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 not only that, but like uh, we're trying to figure out people in groups, like how many people at North Point are engaged beyond just, you know, Sunday morning. And how do we do that? I mean, do we take the number of anybody who's ever showed up ever? That's like 10 million. Right. And I don't know how to do with that number or or it's a better number maybe to say, hey, who comes pretty much regularly Sunday mornings? And we can figure out some numbers off that. So systems, statistics, you putting your name down there really helps us please do that beyond the fact that if there's somebody down your row that's brand new and if and if the 10 people in front of them don't put their name on it then they're going i'm not doing that either that's i'm not getting singled out so if you could help us if you consider north point your church your family you're here every week if you would just always put your name there like that becomes your ministry now is that fair enough you're like sweet i'm in that's so easy i'm here anyways great put your name down that's super helpful to us okay did i pound that significantly are we we're good okay awesome uh, our offering buckets also came by in that entire time that i was yapping so hopefully you're able to be part of that as well we're in a series uh, right now called all that jazz and we are linking because really we're in the book of psalms so even now, as I said that, hopefully you're grabbing a Bible, your electronic device, the Pewback Bible, the Bible you brought, and finding the book of Psalms. I tell students all the time, the easiest way to find the book of Psalms is literally just let the Bible fall open to the middle. And odds are, if it's not Psalms, if you go left, it will be. I mean, it's right in the middle there. So the book of Psalms is where we're going to be this morning. And we're linking Psalms, the book, with this concept of jazz. Now, I'll just confess it right out in the beginning. I'm not a musician. Um, I play a couple instruments. Well, 
I play a couple instruments with air quotes there, but, uh, but I'm not really a musician and I'll just, I don't really, uh, know jazz well. I couldn't name uh, really a jazz artist if I'm authentic with you. Matter of fact, the song that was played before the service started, I couldn't tell you if that was blues or jazz. I just, I just don't know. Anybody with me on that? Like you're not a musician. There's three of us. That's fantastic. Let's, we'll form a club later. We'll be okay. Um, and that's okay because what I've been told about jazz is I've been told that jazz music is like the most authentic uh, style or at least one of the most authentic styles or genre of music. And apparently part of that reason is because jazz players, um, I was going to say are weird, but that would just be, uh, the jazz players are uh, uh, talented enough and skilled enough and unique enough in their talents that they don't just play notes on a page. Like that's kind of not their wiring. Rather, there's some sort of a framework, and all the players are going to play in that framework, so there's some kind of cohesiveness to the music. But at the end of the day, jazz musicians don't really play cover tunes. And cover tunes are great and wonderful. That's good. But they don't really play cover tunes. They're doing their own thing. Or if they do play a cover tune, you may not recognize that song for the first number of bars because, like, it's so different because it's uniquely them. I've heard it said that really, really good jazz musicians really never play it the same way twice because, again, they're just playing kind of what's what they're hearing, what they're seeing, what's in their soul. They're just sort of putting that music onto paper. Am I? Is this even close to right? Some, some of us are you guys are resonating. Some of, Bruce is very excited about that. That's awesome. Um, so that's the idea of jazz, this authentic genre of music, because they're not playing notes on a page, but they're playing kind of just what's pouring out of their heart or what they're hearing and how they're seeing it. Well, it's interesting because the book of Psalms is really the same. I mean, the psalmists, the guys that wrote these different psalms or songs or poems, we could call them, they, they weren't just writing words down from some intellectual ascent. They were writing from their heart, like they're writing from their emotion. And sometimes they just spill these words onto paper because like the psalmists were being so raw and so authentic and so open and honest. Matter of fact, if you read the psalms, And if you're ever trying to figure out where to read in the Bible and you're like, I don't know where to read, like however old you are, just go to that psalm. I've been doing this for years. It's really weird how it relates so often. And I'm like, that's spooky, right? Go to the psalm of your age, because if you read the psalms over any length of time, you'll get this sense. Matter of fact, you'll probably run up against the reality of going, wait, can they say that to God? Is that, that's not okay. You can't say that to God. God will smite you if you say that to him. I can't believe. And then they wrote in the Bible. Like there's stuff that I've said to God that I'm glad nobody recorded ever. Right. But if you read the Psalms, it's like these guys are just so open and authentic and, and, and whatever they're feeling, it's just, it's coming out at God. There's something really cool about that and really open and refreshing and authentic to me, at least I love it. And so that's why we've linked these concepts of jazz and Psalms together. The most authentic style genre of music, potentially, and definitely one of the most authentic books of the Bible in terms of raw human emotion. And so that's the series we're in this morning. We're in a Psalm. Psalm 63 is where we're going to be. So if you found Psalms, hopefully uh, if you just count up to 63 and, and you'll find where we're going to be this morning. And before we, um, we jump into that, um, actually Mandy came out a few minutes ago and read Psalm 63 in a tone of voice that hopefully set the right stage for this Psalm. And so that's why we, we did that. And hopefully you're kind of getting there, but I want to tell you a story to also help set the stage before we jump into Psalm 63. The story is about a young man. He's the son of a king, young man. He's the son of a king. 
This young man eventually decides that he'll make a better king than his dad, which, which isn't a horrible thought. I mean, every, every father wants their son to do better than they did at the family business or whatever. But this young man, the son of a king, decides he's going to be a better king than his dad. And the problem is that he comes up with a scheme in order to do that. Matter of fact, what he does is he sits at the city gates for four years. And as people come into the city, he stops them. And, and the people are coming into the city, the ones that want to meet with the king. Maybe they want justice because they've been wronged somehow. Or, or maybe they need advice about a particular thing. Or they may, maybe they have a particular need that needs to be met. And so they come to meet with the king, but the son stops them at the gates and he says, you know what? I hate to tell you this, but my dad, he doesn't care about you. He doesn't have time for you. Your problem does not matter to him at all. Matter of fact, he, he, has, he has no room for you in his brain. He just doesn't have time. He doesn't care. Every day for four years, the son sits out in front of the city gates. And as people come in to meet with the king, he stops him. And he says, you know what? In my dad's eyes, you're kind of worthless. You're certainly not important enough to meet with him. But if I were king, it would be different. Because see, if I were king, I would spend time with you. And I would know your name and I would give you justice and I would help you and I would make all things right. And so every day for four years, this son sits out in front of the gate and really ruins his father's reputation as he tries to build his own reputation up. Well, four years goes by and the son tells his dad, hey, dad, king, I'm going to go over to a neighboring town to worship. And uh, it's it's a lie. It's not true. Uh, Instead, he goes to a neighboring town and he calls some supporters to meet him there. And he basically declares himself the king. He forms a coup on his dad. He says, I'm the new king. And his dad is heartbroken and devastated and destroyed and depressed. You can feel this, right? The deepest betrayal from a son to a father lies about him, connives, schemes, so that he can overthrow his dad. (laughs) What a sad, what a great way to start a sermon, right? We're all depressed now. Thanks for that, Chris. What a sad situation. And this king, this dad is sad. And so in a moment, he tries to decide what to do. And he decides maybe his best bet will be simply just to flee the city. He'll leave the city. I don't know. Maybe the dad is thinking the only outcome of this situation is war and battle with my son, and I don't want that. Maybe the dad isn't thinking clearly. Maybe he's just hit a point where he is low and sad and sorry, and he thinks there's no other solution. Whatever he's thinking, we don't know. Dad decides to get up and flee the city. And as dad leaves the city, some people follow him, but many don't. Many abandon him, leave him to his own. As dad is heading out of the city after this heartbreaking stab in the back, betrayal by his son, who he loves immensely. He's walking out of the city and a nobody. I mean, literally, he's a nobody. He has a name in the story, which is interesting, Shimei. But he's a nobody. He's standing on a hill as this this king is walking out with a few people that would follow him. And he starts throwing rocks at the king. He starts throwing rocks at the king and he's spitting at the king and he's hurling insults at the king. The king? He's making fun of him. He's saying stuff like, you deserve this. You're a loser. Finally, you're getting what's due you because you are a mess. This nobody is insulting the king, throwing rocks at him, offending him. 
And so the king has a few soldiers with him, and those soldiers, this makes sense to me, it's the only part of the story that makes sense. The soldiers say, hey, give us permission to go up there and chop his head off. (laughs) Yep, that makes sense to me. These soldiers are angry, not only at the abuse that the king is suffering, but frankly, they're probably angry about the entire situation, and they see an opportunity to take that out physically on someone who deserves it. And the king says, no, don't, don't bother. He says, you know what, maybe... Maybe God has given up on me. Maybe I finally hit the point where God has said, you know what, I've, I've had enough. I can't, I can't take you anymore. Because maybe I'm, maybe I'm done for. Just, just let him be. So the dad with his few people, they head out of the city and they're in the wilderness now and they begin to find places to hide. And meanwhile, the son has moved into the king's house. He's sitting on the throne, playing the part of the king on the throne. And the son is, is trying to rule, and, 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 he's, and he's very proud of the scheme that he created and the situation that he's in. And he's thinking to himself, is there anything else that I can do to really seal this, to nail this down? And, and, and he comes up with this idea. He says, you know what, I'm going to take all the women that my dad left in the palace, his concubines, the women that he left back to take care of the place. He goes, I'm going to take them. And he sets up a tent in the middle of the city. And he systematically sleeps with each one of those women as a way to solidify his kingliness and a final stab in the back to his dad. Utter humiliation. Defeated, deflated, depressed, abandoned. Dad is hiding out in the wilderness, out in the desert. And this is the story that we start with this morning. Because, see, it's interesting. That story I told you was a true story. And the dad king in that story is a guy by the name of David. You've heard of David, probably some of you, most of us, David, David, king of Israel. That's that David, David. Maybe you've heard David and Goliath, this, this young man who kills a giant when nobody else would. It's, it's that David. Maybe you've heard David, the shepherd early in his life. He was a shepherd. It was his job. He hung out with sheep. That's what he did. David had a number of brothers, right? He was the youngest and the runtiest, right? It's that David. And this is David and his son, Absalom. Absalom was David's third son, and it was one of his favorites because the the, the Bible is clear. It tells us that Absalom was a good-looking guy. In fact, it says that he had long, flowing hair, whatever that means, right? Absalom was a good-looking guy. He was a man's man, and David loved Absalom. True story. We start with that story because that story is very likely the backdrop for Psalm 63, The psalm that we're going to look at this morning is David's journal entry as this entire episode of his life is going on. David sits down to think through this probably after he's hiding in the wilderness, after Absalom has now sent soldiers to hunt David down and kill him. And he begins to write this uh, song, this this poem, this, um, this psalm, this journal entry. And that's where we start in Psalm 63. Psalm 63 is interesting because it's really shaped around uh, three uh, phrases. One phrase that's used three times. This phrase that's repeated. And and it helps us understand kind of how David is thinking as he begins to write this. And and each time this phrase is used, uh, David employs like a word picture or an analogy to help describe what's going on, to help shape this, this journal entry or this poem. And the phrase is the phrase, my soul. My soul. We're going to hear that a few different times. So Psalm 63, starting in verse uh, 1, he says this. 
He says, oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. And I got to pause this right there for just a second. My soul thirsts for you. That very first picture of the word soul, he couples it with this, this feeling of thirst. And we can't just let it go by because sometimes we hear that word or maybe we hear my soul thirsts for you. And you go, yeah, I know what it's like to be thirsty. Like I, I'm actually feeling a little thirsty right now. I had three cups of coffee and the caffeine's kicking in. I'm a little dry. Yeah, I could have some water, right? but that's not, that's not what he's talking about. When he says thirsty, like he's talking about deep, deep thirst. Like the word that would be great to substitute in there is like dehydrated. Like we, I think we all, we all know that the dangers that come with dehydration, right? I mean, that's why like getting clean water into a lot of these uh, developing countries is, is priority because without clean water, people die. Right? Like you can go some days without food, but you can't go some too many days without water. Dehydration's a big deal. Like if you've ever, if you've ever hiked or maybe you went on an extended hunting trip or whatever you did, you, you were probably very cautious to not get dehydrated. Matter of fact, they say that by the time you start feeling the effects of dehydration, like the headache and that feeling of thirst, the muscle fatigue, like you're already kind of in the danger zone. You've got to get water in you quick. That's the concept of thirst that David's employing. Not just um, uh, an uncomfortability, but like a sense of medical danger. I don't know how to put that. Like a, like a, like a, like a medical disaster is coming. Like I'm in dangerous situation here because I'm dying literally of thirst. But he doesn't say that it's physical thirst. He says what? My soul thirsts. Like, like my soul is dehydrated. Like my soul is literally on the verge of death because it's so dried up. Are you tracking with this? Are you feeling this? Like you've got to feel the sense that David... And we, we just talked about some of the things that are going on in David's life. This makes sense that he would say, my soul thirsts for you. His soul was dehydrating, was thirsty, was crying out. So maybe the question we start with is like, like, is your soul thirsty? Or do you even notice when your soul is thirsty? I mean, David had a pretty good handle on the condition of his soul. Uh, do we? Do we even notice? Um, I was thinking this through this week, and I was thinking of all the other things that, that make me a human, all the other parts of my humanity, and I was thinking about uh, how much time and energy I focus on those things, or maybe we as a country, or we as a people, or we as a community focus on those things. And so like five, ten minutes of Google research, so however true the numbers are, but I just found this kind of interesting. Um, stats of American spending on our physical, like this is the outside physical stuff, um, annually per person, Spent about $660 on gym memberships, right? If we take that across the nation, it's about $2.6 billion. And if we uh, include all the numbers, all the dollars spent on all different kinds of weight loss, the number shoots up to about $60 billion. Individuals spend um, on the physical part of our humanity. Uh, if we think about the physical, but we think inside, we think like our health, you know, the inside, how our body parts inside are functioning in our organs and stuff. The average is about $8,500 per person uh, annually on health care. Right? That breaks out to, uh, if we were to go over a nation, about $2.9 as a nation. 
If we think about the mental part of us, and I'm thinking like, like our intellect, our brain, what goes on up here in terms of like education, entertainment, those kinds of things. If we just look at entertainment, the average household spends annually about three to $5,000 on entertainment. That breaks down about two, uh, two to $500 per month per family. If we think about education, the average family spends about $1,000 um, annually per family on education. If we just look at the small number, the average amount of money spent for an elementary school student for back-to-school shopping, about 650 bucks. If we look at the emotional side of things, uh, have mental health issues, about $450 per person annually is spent on that. Estimates out to about $125 billion as a nation, and that would include substance abuse treatment programs. If we just look at the dollar spent on medications, about $16 billion is spent on antipsychotics, about $11 billion on antidepressants, and about $7 billion on ADHD drugs. Here's my point in saying all of that, because we spend a lot of time and money and energy looking at and caring for the health of our other pieces that make us human. And that's good and right, and I'm, I'm not knocking any of that stuff. I'm just asking the question, how much time and energy and dollars do we spend on keeping our soul healthy? When's the last time we even thought about our soul? You know? How much time and energy do we spend keeping our soul healthy. I would say that our souls are at least as important as our bodies, and I might even argue more important since our souls are eternal. How much time and energy and dollars do we spend on our souls? Back to what David wrote in Psalm 63. We only got through verse 1. That doesn't bode well. That makes us all nervous. He says, My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. David employs this picture of soul thirst. And it's interesting because right when he begins to talk about that, he begins to link some solution to the thirst. And he uses some verbs like looked upon. And, and beholding or beheld or behold. And after those verbs looked and behold, he puts a word, the focus of those verbs. Do you see it? You see it? It's pretty obvious right there. He puts the word you. He's talking to God. He's writing to God about his situation. He says, my soul is thirsty, but he can remember back to a time where it wasn't so dry and it wasn't so dehydrated and it wasn't so disastrous and he talks about remembering of of looking on God and and beholding God he begins to already think this could be better and there's some stuff to do to get me there looked upon and and behold that my soul would be in a better place we get down to verse 5 and he says that phrase again my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. He says, my soul will be satisfied. And he employs this imagery, this picture of like a great banquet. I mean, you kind of get that when he says with fat and rich foods, your mind immediately goes to this table with all this like awesome stuff to eat on it. And he he remembers back to a time where you have a meal that's so satisfying. And so maybe it's a banquet or maybe it's a restaurant, but you've had this phenomenal meal that the kind that you just sit, you sit back from afterwards and you go, you know that meal? 
You think of Thanksgiving or Christmas or a great restaurant or whatever. You sit back and you're just so satisfied and maybe you have to undo the top button on your pants. But you're just like, I was so good. And like everything just feels right with the world because that meal was so satisfying. And it's not just the food that you ate, but the the whole banquet concept with good friends and, and good times and laughter and joy. And it's like this whole night was just great. Like, it's just what I needed. Like, I'm so satisfied. David employs that picture when he says there was a time when my soul was set and my soul will be satisfied. And again, he begins to link solution right away in verse six. He says, when I remember, when I meditate. And again, he puts the focus right after that. He uses the word you. When I meditate on you, God, when I focus on you, like that's where the satisfaction can come. Pulling this picture of a banquet, but talking about how God can satisfy. And then when we get down to verse 7, and he goes for a third picture, and he says, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And this third picture that he employs is a little more difficult to see in our culture. I think original hearers of this song, of this poem, would have immediately got the picture there because they were much more of an agrarian culture, a farming culture. I think we miss it a little bit. But the language that he's employing is really like a shepherd language. He says, the shadow of your wing. Like the shadow of, our, of your wing is this, this language that means protection and, and covering and to keep safe and to defend. It could literally be translated like the, the corner of your garment. Like that idea of, of a, just bringing a robe around someone or something to protect it and cover it and, and bring it in close. It's, it's kind of the shepherd language. And he talks about the concept of my soul clinging, clinging. Like, like when the shepherd would get up and move, the sheep would go, okay, time to go. I mean, they'd just get up and move because they followed after the shepherd. It was how they're wired. And they very often followed close after the shepherd. The literal translation of that word cling can be like follow closely or follow hard after. You know, so it's funny because when, uh, I can't tell you which one of my daughters, because she'll kill me, but one of my daughters, uh, up till she was probably age 10 or 11, she would, like, every time we'd go somewhere, she'd follow super close. Like, she was right on my hip. We joked that she had a magnet in her or something, because she was, like, literally right here. And if I wasn't paying attention, I'd turn, I'd knock her over and stuff, because she was just so close to me. And I can say that it kind of drove me nuts, to be honest with you. Anybody have something like a kid that was clingy or a friend that's clingy or a pet? That's clingy or a spouse. Don't go there. So, so this picture of clinging, like following close to is this shepherd language that David employs. And then this last line in verse eight, where he says, your right hand upholds me. This, this picture or literal language of upholding. It's this idea of reaching down and picking up and carrying just like a shepherd would do to a lamb because it's injured or sick, or stupid, or whatever. This picture of shepherd language, David says, my soul clings to you. These three pictures, a soul that's dehydrated and thirsting, a soul that will be satisfied like a great, delicious, perfect meal, and, and, and this concept of a, of, a, of a soul that's shepherded. And so it's, it's interesting because in verse 8, I think David gives us kind of the prescription, the solution, the answer, this idea of my soul clings to you. The idea of a, of a soul that clings to God is the solution to a weary soul. 
The idea that a a soul that clings to God is the solution to a weary soul and eventually leads to a soul that's satisfied. David finishes his uh, psalm with the last couple verses, which is really a statement of trust. And starting in verse 9, it reads like this. It says, But those who seek to destroy my life, they shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king, but the king shall rejoice in God. And all who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This, this statement of trust, like, God, my soul is not there right now. Right now my soul is thirsty and dehydrated and I feel like I'm dying. And yet I know there was a time and there will be a time again when it's satisfied. And, and I think my role is just to cling to you in this process and I'm going to trust you. My soul clings to you. It's, it's interesting because throughout this psalm, David doesn't really talk about a lot of the specifics of his situation, a lot of the struggles and the pressures. You know, it's interesting because we talked about, and, and imagine a nation doesn't have to go very far to think through some of the things that David's thinking through. His, his son has humiliated him and embarrassed him, and now he's hunting him, and there's got to be some questions like, am I the king again? I mean, God said I'm supposed to be the king, but now I'm, I'm not. What does that mean? Do I get to live back in the house again or, or not? Uh, what about the subjects that were left back there? Is he going to treat them well? What about the people that are in the palace? Is he going to hurt those people? How am I going to get food? What am I going to do for a living? What about my friends who are with me that maybe left stuff back there. All the specifics and details of the drama that he's in. You're with me, right? This is a crazy situation. It's interesting because David doesn't seem to, to, to pray through those things. I'm sure they're on his head, and, and maybe there's like an asterisk somewhere, and David starts talking about those things. But in Psalm 63, David's focus in the midst of his stuff is the condition of his soul. He seems to be more worried about what this situation could do to his soul than any of those physical, practical things. And I find that so interesting because when I'm in stuff, when I'm struggling, when life is unpeeling, when I don't know what to do, I pray about the specifics. And I want to advocate for praying about the specifics. We have a specific God who loves to hear us specifically and answer specifically. I'm going to pray for solution and resolution to the things that are going on. And yet I so often forget to pray for how that's going to affect my soul. It's interesting because there's a gal by the name of uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. I don't know if you know this person or not. She's an artist. She's a Christ follower. She's a quadriplegic. And so uh, as she does her art, she holds her paintbrush with her teeth and does art that way. And, and Johnny's a pretty phenomenal uh, woman. And I heard her say once somebody had asked, do people come up and try to like pray for your healing all the time? Is that part of your 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 experience in life and she goes yeah she goes actually lots of people come up and go hey can i can i pray that you'll be healed and and she always says the same answer according to johnny she says i tell them yes but especially if they would pray for my heart if i could change johnny's word i would say soul especially pray for my soul my heart that it would be right in the midst of whatever god is going to do however life is going to unpeel whatever i've got to go through that my soul because that's what i'm most concerned about I just think there's some beauty to that. And I think it's what David is talking about in Psalm 63 as he just cries out about the condition of his soul. So the obvious application, I think it's pretty easy. It's kind of right there. The question being, how's your soul? How's your soul? What condition is it in? How much focus do you really put on maintaining your soul's health? I mean, what do you even do to examine your soul? 
Sometimes I think we make the wrong diagnosis. Like sometimes our souls are dehydrating and they're withering, and yet we, we, we look at some of those indicators, but we sweep it under the carpet and we attribute it to something else, or we call it something else. We call it uh, a midlife crisis or depression or a short fuse, or we say, well, I'm just not a people person or, or whatever. We've kind of got the wrong diagnosis. It's a soul problem, but we attribute it to something else. Or sometimes we maybe get the right diagnosis, but we assign the wrong treatment to it. We maybe recognize that my soul is dehydrating and withering, but we try to put the wrong fix on it. We buy better toys, better uh, medication, better friends, better spouse, better kids, better physical, better television, better entertainment, whatever. And so we try to apply the wrong fix to a different problem because it's really a soul problem. What do you do to cultivate your soul? I wrote some stuff. I said, life group, connecting group, support recovery group, CR, awaken, Bible study, Bible reading, prayer groups, listen to Christian music on the way to work, read Christian authors. There's no magic fix. You know, like, like, like your physical, like your emotional, like your mental. There's no magic fix to those things. There's not just some kind of a pill or a shot that you can take that makes all those things better. If I want to lose a bunch of weight, I've got to put in some work, right? Our soul is no different. Like, like when we recognize that our souls are thirsty, we've got to put in some work to, to bring some health back to those souls. And it's interesting because David uses words like looked and behold and remember and meditate and cling. And the focus of all of that was on one thing, God. The solution to the dehydration of the soul is a focus on God, a focus on Christ and who he's been. It's interesting because David was in touch with his soul and he knew that he was going through stuff in life and it was causing soul issues and his focus was on like, how is my soul going to turn out? He was looking at his soul and working at keeping his soul healthy. Here's how we're going to end today. Um, we're going to, uh, I want to read a, a quote in a second, and then we're going to sing a song, and a band's going to come out. And The song that we're going to sing, um, it's, uh, it's been around for a, a little bit. Matter of fact, if you were in youth group when I was in youth group, you'll probably recognize this, this song. It's called uh, The Air I Breathe, and it's got this line in it, this chorus that repeats, that says, um, and I'm, there's a lot of measures that go, I'm desperate for you. Because I really think it's the cry of David's heart and it's the cry from a thirsty soul. I'm desperate for you. So we're going to sing that in a second. Let me finish by reading a quote from a guy named Gordon Franz. Gordon Franz is a devotional author. And this is what he said about Psalm 63 as he ends his thoughts on it. He says, The final and probably most important lesson for the believer in the Lord Jesus, who is walking close to the Lord, is that there is no spiritual refreshment to be gained from watching most of the popular, tele- popular television shows or movies, listening to contemporary secular music, or even reading the latest fiction book, if it is devoid of spiritual content and biblical truth. Refreshment and satisfaction for the soul are found only in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, as revealed in the Word of God. It is only when we are content and refreshed that we can come together corporately to truly worship and sing praises to the Lord Jesus Christ, our soul focus must be on him. Yeah, Gordon's a smart guy. And so this morning as we finish and we sing, I guess my question is just, how's your soul? Where's our soul at this morning? How thirsty is it? And what are some of the plans to begin to bring some health back into your soul? So if you would stand with me, we're going to sing together.